0: You can turn over to the book of Titus this morning, Titus chapter 3. Today I want to uh, talk to you about the dangers of division and the uh, uh, power of unity. And uh, the Apostle Paul kind of covers this here in the end of this chapter, this little letter he's putting out there. And uh, we just want to uh, focus our hearts and our minds upon the last several verses here of God's word in Titus chapter uh, 3. So I I just want to pick up actually in verse 4 and read to the end of the chapter just to give it its context. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These, are, these things are excellent and profitable for all people. Verse 9, but f- avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, to speed Zenus the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn and devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul obviously sees the need for Titus here to be aware that there's tremendous power in unity in ministry, but there's also great danger in division. And uh, if you've been around the church at all for any period of time or in any kind of ministry at all, Uh, I'm sure that you've met, come across a troublemaker here or there. And maybe we've even been a troublemaker at times ourselves. Uh, I'm reminded of an illustration after there was a revival in a small little town, and it had concluded. Three of the pastors were discussing the results of the revival with one another. And the Methodist minister said, The revival worked out great for us, we gained four new families. And the Baptist preacher said, we did better than that. We gained six new families. And the Presbyterian sat there and he said, well, we did even better than that. We got rid of 10 of the biggest problem-causing families our church has ever known. Uh, You know, the, the truth is troublemakers are found in every part of society, whether it's even in the home, at school, in the workplace. And sadly, even in the church. Um, troublemakers in the church, they come in all sizes and all shapes, all genders. But I want us to be reminded, before we even get into our text here this morning, that the one phrase that stands out in all of the book of Titus is, is the simple phrase that we see in verse 5 of chapter 3. It's just three words. He saved us. Uh, When you stop and you ponder those three words, they're really the core of the Christian faith. We've talked several weeks about the marvelous, credible, amazing grace of God. And in those simple words, He saved us, you understand that the gospel message is all about salvation. It's all about God saving sinners. Um, That word there has become almost known to the christian community alone but back when paul wrote this word that word sozo saved really has the understanding of delivering someone from harm uh, it could mean temporal deliverance it was sometimes used in rescuing those from danger uh, maybe helping someone along in the the midst of death uh, in Matthew, the gospel he uses it a number of times, and he uses it in, in ways that you 're saving somebody, somebody temporarily, not necessarily eternally. Um, in Matthew chapter eight, verse 25, when the disciples were caught up in the storm, remember on the Sea of Galilee? and uh, they said, uh, "Save us, Lord, for we 're perishing that 's the word. Um, avoid that storm." Help us be delivered from that storm. So it really has the understanding of delivering someone from grave danger. And when you stop and you think about how important it is that we are delivered from grave danger, we have to understand our own situation before a holy God. We looked last week at verse 3, and it says there, We ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy hating hated by others and hating one another those terms basically can be added to the list that we find throughout scripture that describes us lest you think maybe here today that you're a good person that somehow you don't measure up to this list that you're you're better than that um, throughout the Word of God, we're told that the human nature, that man in Romans chapter 1 describes, Paul describes man as a fallen being, as being a victim of lust, of the heart, in, in impurity. He describes him giving his body over to that which would be dishonor, dishonoring. He says that he exchanges the truth of God for a lie in Romans. And he worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. We see that today. He's giving over to degraded passions, such as women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, such as men burning in desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving their own persons, the due penalty of their error. He describes the human depravity as having a reprobate or depraved mind, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, evil, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, even disobedient to parents. He, He clearly points out that we are depraved, that we are fallen, that we don't have any understanding, that we're untrustworthy, that we're unloving, that we're even unmerciful. And even though he knows the ordinance of God and knows that those who practice such things are worthy of death, he not only does them, but the Word of God says there are some who give hearty approval to the rest who do them as well. They cheer him on. Even the Apostle Paul, once again, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that the fallen man is described and made up of fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. swindlers. Over in Galatians chapter 5, he describes human fallenness as engaging itself in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Actions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like that. And even in Ephesians, he gives a descriptions that we're futile in our minds. We're darkened in our understanding. We're excluded from the life of God. We're ignorant, hard of heart, callous, sensual, practicing every kind of impurity with greediness. I mean, when you stop and think about it, we're very not We're not very good people. (laughs) We're just not. Even in Ephesians 2, he says that they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. They are driven by lusts of their flesh, the desire of the flesh and the mind, and that by nature are children of wrath. See, that's human depravity at its core. That's a description of man before he is saved, before he is rescued. By God. And so, if you were to go to a doctor and he were to diagnose you with a disease, hopefully he could prescribe something to help you with your disease. Well, God has seen that we have been diagnosed with a disease, and the disease causes eternal separation from God unless it's dealt with. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And what I just read you describes all ungodliness. And it describes the human depravity of the human heart. And in Romans 6.23 we're told the wages of sin is what? It's death. Death, hell, eternal punishment. And see, that's from the state from which we need to be rescued. That's the state from which we need to be saved. If you're in a pool and you're drowning, but somehow you don't know it, you're not going to cry for the lifeguard. You're not going to say help. We have a lot of people that are walking around today not knowing that they are separated from their Creator. And they're doomed to an eternity of separation from the Creator. And so it tells us clearly that He saved us. Um, God our Savior. Jesus Christ our Savior. And when you stop and you think about that message that Paul wants Titus to understand, Titus is living in a pagan society. Some of these pagans are coming to Christ, and, and Paul instruction to him is say, hey, remember, don't forget from which you've come. Remember that you too are called to live lives full of good deeds before the Lord. That's what we just read. At the end there, he kind of touches on that. Don't, don't miss the mark. Don't think it's just about being religious. That's not the calling that God has upon our, our lives. God wants us to know that there's more to simply being religious. There's more to coming to church. What does your life look like outside of these four walls? During the rest of the week, are people looking at you and saying, wow, there's something different about this person? Or are they shaking their head saying, that that person says they go to church. Can you believe they go to church? Look at the way they practice business. Look at the way their work ethic is, is not very good. Look at the way they cheat their employer or whatever it might be. And so Paul, in this short little book, kind of prepares us and focuses on something that is is rather uh, important, that being relationships. He wants us to understand that, you know what, it boils down to basically in chapter 2, verse 10, the purpose of believers living is to show all good faith so that they may adorn the doctrines of God and Savior in every respect. So as believers, we're to have good works in our lives so that we are walking testimonies of God's grace. We're to live in a way that the word of God is not dishonored, that Christ is not dishonored. And so he boils it down basically to relationships. In chapter 1, he talks about relationships of the, the people in the church to the Lord of the church. And he talked about his way as far as review. He talked about in chapter one the idea that you know what, you, you need to have godly leadership, unlike the false teachers who have no leadership, the false teachers who surrounded their little church here in Crete. But it needs to be focused on the relationship to the lord it needs to be modeled it needs to be exemplified in the leadership of the church and then chapter 2 he kind of just reiterates and he says it's also about leadership or about relationships among believers that's very important what do our relationships look like among believers within the church in chapter 3 he talks about that relationship between believers and that unregenerate, that pagan society in which we live, and we are to have a relationship with that. We're not just to hold up in our house and you know, um, not have any dealings with the world at all. We're not called to go live in a monastery somewhere and just take our Bible and pray and read it. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. We're called to go out into this sin-infected, pagan society in which we live. And infect it with the glory of God. Infect it with the power of the gospel. Infect it with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. So we got to get out of the bunker mentality as far as the church of Christ is considered. You know, we don't want to have the mentality, okay, just us four, no more. And, you know, we just keep our little family right here. And, boy, we don't want anybody else breaking into our thing because it would just ruin everything. No, we're called to go out into that lost and dying world and take the gospel in a way that depicts our own lives. We're living a life of a changed, a changed person because Christ has changed our heart. And so when we go out and we speak of Christ changing people, they can look at us and say, wow, it, it must work. Look at you. But church leaders must deal with divisive people. Church leaders must deal with problem people. And, and that's where he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The first point here is, you know what? What are we going to do with the false teachers? I know we went over this a lot before in this, this book. But you can see how important it is. He even brings it up at the end of the letter once again. The idea that, you know, someone who is a a false teacher needs to be addressed. We can't just sit by and allow false teaching to just go on throughout the church. And so he says here, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions. All these things, you see, beloved, are things that really, uh, unfortunately, people get sidetracked on. People get kind of off the main message. And these are are people who uh, want us to believe that focusing not on the main message is a good thing. And they want us to get focused on things like foolish controversies. It means unprofitable. It means you're not going to benefit anything there from it, from what he's saying. That's not going to help us. Avoid those kind of things. Avoid genealogies. Avoid dissensions, quarrels about the law. See, back then they they had a a major misunderstanding of of what the law even was. Because Israel had taken the law of God and they they kind of polluted it. They turned it into something that God never intended it to be. And they used it to browbeat the people with. But that's not what God desires. That's not what God desires. Uh, wants from us. And so he says there very clearly, once again, there's people within the church who are, are going to bring up, stir up stuff, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. And what's he say? He says they're unprofitable. They're worthless. Now, some people, unfortunately, take that and say, see, that's why we shouldn't teach doctrine because doctrine is, is quarrelsome. Doctrine is divisive. Well, that's not what he's saying. These people come in the church with the intent of of sharing these foolish controversies. They're always looking for a way to kind of push their, their agenda. And he's saying they're unprofitable. It's worthless to spend time there. We don't want to do that. And then he talks about not just the the, 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 the false teacher, the deceitful teachers. But he also talks there in verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division. So there's a divisive person as well. Not just somebody who's sharing false doctrine or false teaching. But there's also somebody who is, is called divisive. One translation calls them Factious. As for a person who stirs up division, that's what that means. They consciously stir up division. And it says, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Nothing at all. And I think it's important to us that we understand that when God clearly points out here that there are people who are able to somehow come into the church and be divisive, we have to be weary of those people. Someone who stirs up division. Someone who kind of wants their own agenda uh, they, they don't want to listen to truth. They don't, they don't care about truth. They just have what they believe, and maybe it's an opinion kind of a thing. may not even be a doctrinal issue. And, and they, just, they just cause up, all, all sorts of, of problems. And it has the idea that they're stirring it up. So maybe the, the division is not there, but they're trying to make it happen. That's their goal. And it's very serious when you you come into the body of Christ and you speak of the unity of the body of Christ and you have someone within that body who is unwilling to to yield to maybe the teachers or whoever it might be, or yield ultimately to the word of God and say, Well, I don't care what that says, I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. And I'm going to tell other people that I don't believe that, and I'm going to make sure they tell other people. And you can see it spreads like almost like a cancer, it just starts spreading. And they're stirring it up. Do you ever make chocolate milk? You know, you can either get the liquid or you can get the powder. And there's nothing worse than having a glass of chocolate milk that's not stirred correctly. You know, you get to the end, and there's a big chunk of <laughs> powder down there, and, and then the you know it kind of breaks through and it's even dry on the inside. Um, or even when you have the liquid, you know, it's not stirred properly. And at the end, it's just all the chocolate syrup. Um, you know, you've got you to stir that stuff up and you've got to do it aggressively. And see, here's the idea, but it's on a negative side. It's saying this person comes in and they, they want to stir people up, but not in a good way. You know, you can stir people up in a good way, Right. I mean, you can edify people. You can kind of exhort people. You can get them kind of rallied. That's what a coach does with a team. You know, they get them around something. They, hey, we're gonna go. Let's go. Let's go. You know, halftime, and they go out and, and then they win the game the second half or something uh, because they're they're stirred up. They, he said something that, that got them going. That's a that's a positive way. But this is really a, a negative way to use that. And so you can kind of see their their motivation here is not is not right. It says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. You might say, wow, that sounds kind of harsh. You, You warn him once, you warn him twice, and you have nothing else to do with him? Are you serious? That's how serious this is. It's not something to just to kind of, well, you know, that just let them say whatever they want to say and, and just turn your eye, don't, don't, you know, pay any attention to them. No, it, it doesn't say that. It says if you find a divisive person, if you find someone who's stirring up division within the body of Christ, first of all, you warn them once and then you warn them twice. And then you have nothing to do with them. Where does that come out of? What is he teaching here? He's basically going back to Matthew, right? And he's saying, hey, this is how you deal with somebody who needs discipline in the church. And the reason is you need to discipline this person is because they're in sin. See, this isn't somebody who has an innocent kind of view on, you know, maybe, maybe they have a different view than uh, uh, the church does on um, whatever. It could be gifts. It could be uh, end time, you know, eschatology, and, you know, you agree to disagree. We're not talking about that kind of person. We're talking about the kind of person that comes in. They know they don't hold the doctrine of that church. And they go in with an agenda to change it. And that's what it says here. When you find that kind of a person, it says, you know what? You warn them once. So they're, they're, they're a believer. These are Christians we're talking about. These aren't You know, it's not the world creeping into the church. These are actually believers who are causing issues within a local assembly. And it says, you warn them once, then you warn them twice. All right? And then after that, what? It says you have nothing to do with them. And that's exactly what it means. You don't have anything to do with them. Because they're not willing to yield to that leadership. They're not willing to yield to that local body, whatever it might be. And you say, well, that that sounds kind of harsh. But see, that shows me that, that God knows how he wants his church to operate. He doesn't want his church to operate in some vague field of belief somewhere. What do you guys believe on end times? Well, we really don't get into that because, you know, that's kind of, you know, people are all over on the map on that, so you can believe whatever you want. What do you believe on the gifts? Well, you know, we don't really get into that either because that's kind of divisive. Uh, what about salvation? You believe in a man-centered salvation of says, Well, you know, we believe God saves and, you know, it's just all very general. It's very generic. And so you end up with a, a cauldron of all these different kind of beliefs, but nobody's talking about doctrine. So you have a Bible study in a local home, and someone says, well, here, you know, they'll teach this verse, and they teach some verse, and, and then, you know, three-quarters of the Bible study disagree with them. And you think, oh, okay, well, maybe that person's wrong. And then you hear what the person who's disagreeing with them believes, and they don't agree with anybody else either. And then you have somebody else who doesn't agree with anybody. So you got all these different beliefs coming together. And some people say, well, that's unity. That's good. It's not good. That's confusion. You know, that's confusion. And and God doesn't want our our body, our church, to be a confused church. I would rather teach authoritatively on certain doctrines, honestly believing that's what the Word of God says, and maybe in the end be wrong, than to sit here and say, Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, I mean, we have to be we have to be gracious, surely. But we also have to follow what Scripture says here. And then when someone comes into church and they start dividing the body of Christ in a purposeful way to get their, their teaching out, to get their way, you say, it says there you warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you have nothing to do with that person. And then it tells us why. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is what? Warped and sinful. See, this isn't a misunderstanding on some doctrine. This is a sin that this pit person is participating in. And it says he's self-condemned. So when you have nothing to do with them, basically you're stepping away saying, you know what, if you're not going to play by you know, what we've asked you to do here, uh, then you know, you're not going to play at all. We're not going to play with you. <laughs> and basically that alone, the goal is so that person can see, wow, why won't anybody have anything to do with me? Maybe I need to change my attitude. Maybe I need to change my teaching. Maybe I need to to realize that maybe I shouldn't be doing this in this church. And the goal is restorative. It's always restorative. Whenever there's church discipline or whenever there's confrontation with sin, it's not condemnation. It's not you don't put the person in the corner and put a dunce hat on them and say, "Ah, you're not like us. That's not what we're talking about. That wouldn't accomplish anything. That wouldn't even be Christ-like. No, you reach out to them, you do it once, you do it twice, you try to reason with them. If they don't listen and they're dead set on dividing the body of Christ, it says, you know what, you don't have anything to do with that person because they're in a state of sin. They're, they're in a, and they're a point where their thinking is even warped by that sin. That sin could be pride, that sin could be an ego too big, who knows what the sin is but the the whole idea that they're causing division within the body of Christ is is very important for us to understand that that kind of person is warped and, it says, sinful, and that they are self-condemned. You don't even have to condemn them. It's obvious to all, is the idea. And we've all probably maybe met people like that, and we've come across people like that, you know, and it's not about who's right, who's wrong. See, I really believe that even though maybe, for example, say say uh, on the issue of of the, the charismatic issue with the 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 gifts and and the ongoing role of the gifts and all that stuff, I think it would be wrong for a person like that to come into a body like ours that we're cessationists, okay, and to have an agenda okay, to to make sure that people start speaking in tongues and have an agenda to start, you know, pushing this whole thing, that would be wrong. But I also think on the other side of it, it would be wrong for someone like me who doesn't believe anything like that to, to make my path straight to a church like that and go in there and start causing problems within that body, even though in my mind they're not in accord with Scripture, See, so we have to be careful. It's not always just a doctrinal issue. It's, it's about the idea of, of stirring up the vision. That's the intent here. And so we have to be careful. It's not, I'm not saying you, know, you would compromise in that area, but if you don't believe that, then don't go to that church. Go find a church that you believe. And that's what's important to understand. Well, then he moves on here, and he talks about Paul's team. All right, And so you, you see the, the dangers of div- division, the dangers of divisiveness. But then also Paul wants them to know that there's, there's a positive side to this. Um, there's a side to this whole thing that, that there's some people that, that can really uh, add a, a, a positive um, attitude about ministry. It's not always you're dealing with false teachers and people who are divisive. That's not what ministry is all about. That's just a fraction of it. Most of ministry is dealing with people that Paul speaks of here. And when you stop and you think about it, all the way back in, in Paul's time, okay, uh, Rome basically ruled the world. They totally ruled the world. And if you were to, were to ask for a prominent list of, of religions of the world, Christianity would not be one at this point. Um, maybe it would be listed as an offshoot of 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 Judaism or something, but it wasn't necessarily a prominent religion at this point. And so, you know, their followers back in Paul's time, they claimed that this obscure Galilean Jew who had been crucified, that he somehow was the promised Jewish Messiah and that he had been raised from the dead. But the average man on the street had not heard the good news of Christianity. That's just the way it was. The world was pretty much pagan, outside of the message of Christ. So here's this little obscure man, Paul, who came from the southern coast of what we call Turkey nowadays, and he had met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ had commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentile world. I mean, when you stop and think about it, that's an enormous task. And you say, well, how is he going to go about doing this? Remember, he had no mass media, he had no Facebook, he had no Twitter, he had none of that stuff. He had no CDs or tapes or any of that stuff. He couldn't broadcast a message on the radio. Um, There was no rapid transportation system back then. Uh, he couldn't drive on modern highways, or on a train, or a jet, or whatever he had to do to go from city to city. No, he had to walk, or he had to take a boat. He couldn't pick up, pick up a telephone and, with a couple buttons, talk to all his team and his key members of his team. He couldn't do that. He communicated to them with hand-written, hand-carried letters that sometimes took weeks, if not months, to deliver. I mean, can you imagine trying to start up a company back then? <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be impossible almost. Now we, we have all this quick stuff. Everything's fast, fast, fast. In spite of all those limitations, Paul somehow pulled this off. He launched the, the Christian message to the Gentiles. And it permanently changed the history of the world. Well, how did he do it? He did it with a team of people. He did it with a team of people. And Titus chapter 12 to 15 shows us that. It shows us that that Paul had some faithful servants that helped him. And he lists them there. Uh, Paul was not what we call a one-man show. All right? He always worked with or he always worked through a team of people who were committed to ministry. And this... These couple closing verses really shows the importance of having that kind of a mindset. When you stop and you think about it, that's the only kind of ministry there is, is team ministry. We can't think that somehow we're God's gift to the earth and we're the only one that has any message to share with anybody and boy, you know, that's it. If I don't do it, nobody can do it. The opposite is true. And so he lists his team members here. The first one, obviously, being Titus. He does, he's not mentioned right here, but Titus. And, and we've already kind of did a... covered Titus earlier on in the stu- study. He was Paul's faithful delegate. He was sent to Crete to work with these difficult group of people. He was a Gentile, probably in his late 30s. And he... Sent to Dalmatia, modern, what we would call Albania and the Balkan states. He was solid, okay? He was a faithful man of God. And then, more important here in our text, in verse 12, he talks of a man named Artemis. This is pretty much the only reference that this guy gets. This is it, Artemis. Um, From his name, you can look at his name and maybe think that he was a Gentile from the fact that Paul considered him worthy a, as a replacement for Titus, he must have been competent. Okay, He must have been knowledgeable. He must have been faithful. He must have been mature in his faith. If Paul ended up sending Tychicus to Ephesus and Titus met Paul in Nicopolis and then headed north to Dalmatia, then Artemis probably replaced him in Crete, because Titus went with Paul. But we don't know anything about him, nothing at all. And then you have Tychicus. He's another faithful Gentile believer. He was a native of western Turkey, Asia. Um, He had traveled with, with Paul, along with some other men along the way, And at the close of of Paul's third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, um, later he was with with Paul during his his first Roman imprisonment. Paul sent the the letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and he sent those letters with this man. And he told those churches about Paul's circumstances. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verse 21. So that you also may know how, how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the, the beloved brother and faithful minister... In the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he, he may be encouraged by your hearts. And even over in, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, we read once again about him. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful ministry and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. And later, even Paul sent him to Ephesus to relieve Timothy so that maybe Timothy could join Paul in Rome before his execution. We don't know. But Paul here calls this, this fellow servant, a beloved brother, a faithful servant, a fellow bond servant in the Lord. Uh, the idea here, beloved, he was a valuable team player. See, it wasn't just all about Paul all the time, even though Paul was a very gifted individual. He realized he needed people around him like Titus, like Tychicus, like Artemis. And then the fourth guy mentioned here, He says in in verse uh, 12 that he was going to set out and he wanted uh, Tychus to come to you um, at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Remember, Paul's not in prison yet. He's able to travel around still. Verse 13, he says, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer. (laughs) This is the only reference to this guy in the Bible. Uh, Some commentators say that maybe he was Greek because he uh, had a Greek name. So maybe he was Gentile. But that's not always uh, the case. Um, He had uh, asked Titus to help supply his needs. And that may mean that he was a a Jewish expert in the, the Mosaic law. We don't know. In any case, he had this long career, long enough to accompany Apollos on this trip. And these two men probably carried this epistle, the epistle of Titus, to Crete. They probably hand-delivered it themselves. And so, obviously, Zenus was a godly man, and he was a lawyer, which is kind of Interesting. If you're a lawyer here today, sorry about that. but <laughs> He was a lawyer, and he was a godly man. Paul wouldn't have used him. And then he mentions Apollos, another member of his team. He says, see that they lack nothing. Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria in northern Egypt. He was known as an eloquent orator. Uh, he was mighty in the scriptures, the word of God says. He was fervent in spirit. Um, He came to uh, Ephesus where Paul's teammates, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and taught him in the way of God more accurately. And the fact that he even listened to them points out that, I mean, as a gifted man, he was a humble man as well. He was teachable. And that's very important to understand. He had a teachable heart. Uh, And later on, he had a, a very powerful ministry even in Corinth. Remember, they say, you know, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, all right? And so this man was was very well known for his eloquence, but he was also known to be teachable. And you don't find that very often. A lot of times you, you find people that are very, very, very gifted, and you try to tell them anything, and it's like, who are you? You know, are you talking to me? You know, uh, that's the kind of attitude you get from them. And that's sad, um, You know, we need to be teachable. We need to have that understanding that, you know what, we do what we do only because God equips us to do it and God empowers us to do it. We don't do what we do because of some innate ability in and of ourselves apart from God. Hopefully that's not the case. And then he even mentions some other folks here, our people, he mentions... Uh, all those who are with me, there was other Christians there in Crete, all the believers who go unnamed um, and he even concludes there, and he says, uh, "Those who love us in the faith all right uh, it 's very, very important, but I just want to close with this because I think it 's so important that we understand paul 's mentality when it comes to ministry, that he wasn 't a lone ranger. He desired to work with, with men and women in ministry. And these are basic team principles uh, you know, that we can apply. And there's at least 10 here. Quickly, we can go over them. First of all, every member of the team is responsible to engage in good deeds when it comes to the Christian faith. And that's what he says there uh, over and over again in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul denounces the false teachers and he denounces them because they were detestable and disobedient and it says worthless of any good deed. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he says to Titus, you be a good example in good deeds. In verse 14, he says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous good deeds In chapter 3, verse 1, he tells Titus to remind the believers to be ready for every good deed. In verse 5, he clarifies that God just didn't save us to sit around and do nothing, but he saved us on the basis um, to, to do these good deeds. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. In other words, you're to give thought, to take the lead in good deeds in your Christian life. Don't just sit back in the armchairs of grace and say, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. No, we should be engaged. We should be responsible. Understand our our responsibility that we should be engaged in good deeds. Not that those good deeds save us. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying if we're changed, if we're transformed in Christ, we should be full of good deeds. God should be doing a work in us. Secondly, we're interdependent as the body of Christ, right? We all depend on one another. We can't just operate on our own. We can't just run off and left field, and, yeah, I'm going to do, God's calling me to do this. No, Paul was an extremely gifted man. He needed others, though. It wasn't just a one-way street, you know? In other words, it wasn't just that the Christians needed Paul because he was so gifted and he was an apostle, and, oh, we just need you, need you. No, he needed them. He needed Titus at his side badly enough to ask him to leave work in Crete and spend the winter with him in, in Nicopolis. So a lot of times we have to remind ourselves that we can't just function as a sole member of the body of Christ. If you cut your finger and you don't treat it the way you should treat it, what could happen It could get infected? If you still don't treat it, it could turn into gangrene. If you still don't treat it, you could lose a finger. You could lose a couple fingers. You could lose your hand. You could lose your arm. It could kill you all over a cut. Because the body functions together. Everything is tied together. That's the same way the body of Christ is. Nobody is to function interdependent. Independence of anyone else. We have the interdependency among us as believers. Thirdly, we must involve others in ministry and then trust them to do it. Sometimes that's not easy to do, but it's important. D.L. Moody used to joke that the best committee consists of three members where one is sick and the other one can't attend the meeting. (laughs) You know, in our church, we don't really have committees. Um, they used to, and they were kind of uh, places of power. And, you know, I'm chairman of this committee, chairman of that committee. And we have the idea that, you know what, we want ministry teams. We want people to come together around a common cause and work together to do something for the cause of Christ. And obviously, that ministry team would have a leader. But I think just the idea that it, it breaks away from the idea of mentality of committee this, committee that. Uh, it, it speaks to the very nature of, of the the direction and the, the, the momentum we want to build. We don't want it tied up by some committee somewhere. Um, ministry team is a much better phrase. And so it says there that you have to allow them to do it. You know, to, when you when you enlist people into ministry and you entrust with them the ability to do something, what's going to happen? Sooner or later, they're going to drop the ball, right? Sooner or later, usually early on, they're going to do something that's just not right. Not, it's wrong. I remember in, in uh, youth ministry one time, I entrusted something to, to one of the kids and uh, very gifted artist and i say you know you come up with the the theme for this this series we're teaching the kids oh okay all right you know and i thought you know i'm just gonna let him do it and uh you know i looked at some of his stuff very gifted thing but i'll tell you man he came out with the weird it was this weird (laughs) illustration i mean i couldn't even use it it was just so weird and you know i thought you know i had to make a call i thought well do we use this or not and it was good for him to learn, too. So I pulled a couple of kids aside and said, hey, you know, so-and-so came up with this for the, the camp that we're going to go to. What do you think, you know? And, uh, you know, they looked at it. And, and being his uh, peers, you know, they laughed at it. You know, they're, they're almost cruel to him. But he needed to understand that, wait, this is, you kind of got off the, <laughs> the beaten track here. So you, you have to entrust things with people, and you trust them to do it. But don't be afraid to step in and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't really going the way I want it to go. Here's what I had in mind, or here's maybe you need to rethink this or rethink that rather than just let them totally fail on themselves. Also, you must promote others' ministries. You know, often in in Paul's letters, he promoted the ministries of others constantly. And I think that that's so important. You know, we're not the only church on the block, beloved. And sometimes we have to get out of that mindset and realize, hey, there's other churches out there that are teaching the word of God that are doing wonderful things for the cause of Christ. And sometimes we need to get behind them and pray for them and even participate at times. Fifthly, every team needs godly leadership. And Paul was the example of godly leadership. Uh, And he followed Christ himself. So when you stop and you think about the local church church, on the church level, leadership should be shared among a plurality of elders. We've gone through that. But it's inevitable that on every leadership team, there has to be a leader among the leaders. And we see that within our small fellowship, even though it's small. You know, whether it's the nursery or whether it's the fellowship time or whether it's you know, the women's ministry, or whatever. I mean, people step up and they, they take hold of it and they run with it. And it's something that's near and dear to their heart. We shouldn't have to talk people into serving Christ. Um, sixthly a team leader must be a servant leader in other words just because you're part of a ministry team it doesn't mean that you just sit around and bark you know directives at people Uh, that's not what a leader does a leader first of all is called a servant we need to be a servant and we need to serve the body of Christ a team seventhly needs to spend time together to function well this is so important as sometimes we forget this that if we don't function together well as a team probably we're not spending time together and that goes from from any ministry and and a lot of times the problem is is we're plugged into three or four different ministries so we're spreading ourselves so thin that we can't spend time with everybody but see if if you can't spend time with those that you minister with it's it's going to affect it in a negative way somehow A team leader also needs to instill, obviously, some form of vision. That's that's what Paul basically does here. Paul was letting the believers in Crete know, hey, you know what, you're not alone. He wanted them to know that there's other Christians here. Um, He wanted them to, 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 to understand that they're not on an island all by themselves, literally. Also, you have to be a model living by faith. God works through our faith. All right? There's no area that requires more faith than that of, of ministry when you're plugged into ministry. And Paul, over and over again, kind of points that out and he leads in that way. But the last thing I see here, and I see it right at the very last verse, it says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then he says this, grace be with you all. And I think the reason he says that is simply because, you know what, without the grace of God, none of this can be accomplished. None of this will be accomplished at all. We can't do anything if it's not for the grace of God. And so a team leader needs to promote and live by the grace of God. Um, the Greek text literally reads right here, it says, The grace be with you all. The grace. That abundant sustaining, all-sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it was that grace that reached down to that angry Saul who was persecuting the church on the road to Damascus. It was that grace that transformed him, changed his heart. Even though he was completely undeserving, he was out killing Christians for goodness sake. Paul deserved God's judgment, but he didn't. He received his mercy, he received his grace. God's grace motivated Paul to suffer hardship, persecution for the gospel. It motivated him to serve Christ with, you might say, an unstoppable zeal at times. And if anyone even thought of perverting the grace of God, he called down anathemas on him. He didn't fool around with that. And so I hope that as we stop and we... We conclude our little study through the book of Titus. Two questions to ask. Are you on a team? Have you experienced the love and kindness and mercy and grace of Christ at the cross? Have you been justified by His grace now that you know that you're an heir of eternal life? If not, you need to kind of think about this. You have to come to Christ in a helplessly lost situation. Being helplessly lost as a sinner and receive by faith his free gift of eternal life. And then the second question is simply this If you are on the team, are you just a bench warmer or are you committed to ministry? Are you using whatever gifts God has given to you that he's entrusted to you so that one day, too, you can hear his word, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Father, we thank you for this study that we've worked through in Titus. And Lord, we, we thank you that it really highlights the grace of God, the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in saving, the grace of God in, in, in service to you. And Lord, I pray that we would walk away from our, our several weeks here in this book with something to hold on to, your truth. And, Lord, I ask that if there's someone here who's not sure if they're on that team, if if they haven't crossed that line of faith, given their heart, their life to Christ, chosen to follow him instead of their own agenda, Lord, it's never too late. And, Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would give them the desire that maybe they don't even have, that you would give them the understanding, help their unbelief, Lord. We ask this, Lord that you would cause them to repent of their sin and turn to you for salvation. And for us, Lord, who are saved, I pray that we would have a renewed mentality when it comes to this lost and dying world in which we live, that, Father, that we would not lose hope in the power of the glorious gospel of Christ, that we wouldn't lose hope in the fact that you still transform, you save, you change people's hearts, and you do it by your sovereign, gracious hand. And yet, somehow you've woven us into the mix to take the message that performs that change to a lost and dying world. I pray that we wouldn't forget our duty as believers to share with those around you, around us who have yet to hear the gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.